The scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Joel chapter, two, chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 17 to 21. You'll remember that the primary crisis we've been dealing with in Joel has been a worship crisis, a worship crisis uh, that led to severe affliction via locust plague upon the people. And there was a sort of dialogue, a back and forth, a pronouncement of judgment, the people respond in repentance, a, re- a pronouncement of future coming judgment. And once again then, the, 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 the offered repentance of the people and the Lord's response to the people. And His promise of restoration and His promise of the giving of the Spirit. And then His promise... The last time we were together that he would come in judgment in this valley of decision and turn the enemies of his people on this great and cataclysmic day of judgment into a wine press that he would bring down judgment upon. And that brings us to this section, this final section, this glorious future of Judah where Joel portrays the day that this merry-go-round of futility and this cycle of worship crises is no more. <clears throat> so Joel chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and, the, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But, because, uh, but Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now for Revelation chapter 21, we will be reading from verses 22 of chapter 21 to chapter 22, verse 5. Revelation chapter 21, verses Chapter 21, verses 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will be shut, will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you bow your heads with me? Our God and Father, by your Spirit, you alone give eyes to see and ears to hear, even as you proclaim the year of Jubilee, good and wonderful news. So we ask this morning that you would illumine the eyes of our hearts to cling to you, to worship you, and to flee from sin, and to hope in your saving power from this veil of tears. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There really is a dilemma that remains in the drama of redemption and in the scheme of God's goal for creation. If we're to orient ourselves to our place in the text of Joel up to this point, God may be the stronghold of his people, as Joel declared in verse 16, judging the enemies of his people, and as we saw at the end of chapter 2, enabling his people through the operation of the Spirit to offer up to him proper worship, but still something more is needed, or at least something more has, been, has yet to be accomplished. If we think about it, God's goal and, and, his, and his plan in the drama of redemption has not been completed. God desires to dwell on his holy mountain in the city with his people. If we think back to Adam, we recognize quite immediately that this is a reality. The goal of creation with Adam was that he would be tested through the entrance of the devil in the garden and that he would execute his proper office as a prophet, priest, and king and thereby expel the, the, the devil from the garden and earn in merit for all mankind consummated eschatological life, glorified life, the new heavens and the new earth that God might dwell in eternity with mankind. But we still haven't reached that, and that's a problem because even though we have the Spirit and the promises of judgment, we are still corrupt and we're still not with Him where He is in Zion. And so Joel is, what Joel is doing this morning is, as it were, peeling back the curtain of, of the future, peeling back the curtain of heaven and revealing something about what that will be like. And what we learn this morning is that, that because the Lord is in his holy city, he will cleanse us from guilt, that we might dwell with him as holy in an impenetrable and incorruptible city. And we'll look at that in three ways. First, an impenetrable city. Second, the God who remains. And third, the conquering Lord. The God who remains, uh, excuse me, the impenetrable city, the God who remains, and the conquering Lord. So first, an impenetrable city. One of the concepts that we have to reckon with as we approach a text like this is the concept of the impenetrable city. One of the core tenets of, uh, of Judah's faith, of Israel's faith in God, was that Jerusalem itself was a city that could not be broken, that could not be pierced. Because of who they were, Judah was free, as it were, from the fear of foreign invasion. God himself, they believed, was their shield and their defender. He would come to their aid. He would deliver them. He would as it were, knock back the enemies from the walls of Jerusalem. Their walls could not be scaled. We see confidence expressed in this way 
just as we sung this morning in the words of, of Psalm 91. You who dwell in the shelter of the Most High God will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. It's expressing our confidence in the safety that God is to Jerusalem. We get an example of this kind of protection that God gives and offers to His people in 1 Kings chapter 19. There, Sennacherib sends a, a, the king of Assyria sends a messenger to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and he declares this. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? He's, he's mocking God. How different is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the gods of the foreign nations that they led to the slaughter and put to the sword. Jerusalem cannot stand, is his message to Hezekiah. Your God is no match for the might of the kings of Assyria. Well, Hezekiah falls prostrate before the Lord and he repents and he beckons the Lord's help on behalf of his people. And Isaiah then, on behalf of God, goes to the messenger of Sennacherib and he declares this to him. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow here or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. That's the kind of protection that Israel believed in, that Judah believed in. But we know, of course, that impenetrability, that this unbreakability of the walls of Jerusalem and the people of Judah was not always the case throughout their history. Judah would be violated in a number of ways the more she delved into sin. In Joel, we've seen this. We've seen how the locusts came in and invaded everything throughout the land, leaving it desolate. And they were pictured, these locusts, in militaristic language. We also saw then in chapter 2, after the people had repented, how they received another oracle of coming judgment, this time in the form of, uh, of an army that no one has ever heard of and that none can ever forget, that scale the walls of Jerusalem, that climb through the windows. They do not waver in their paths. Their battle cry is strong. These are mighty warriors. How could Jerusalem stand before them? And Joel also hints at it in this text, that this impenetrability hasn't always been the case. In verse 17, he, he declares that no strangers would ever again pass through the city of Jerusalem, implying that this intrusion by foreign invaders had been an issue in the past. In verse 19, he references both Edom and Egypt, both of whom would play a role in Judah's eventual downfall in 587. When, the, when Babylon carried them off to exile. So we know, ultimately speaking, that Jerusalem became a city that was broken, broken and that they've been struggling through this perpetual problem of being invaded and broken and having foreigners in their midst. 
and losing their sacred identity as God's special and holy people. They're still on this merry-go-round. I think a modern example helps us understand the seriousness, at least for them, of this issue. For the American patriot, invasion uh, of the United States is, is believed to be impossible. My uncle has told me this a number of times. And the reasons that they typically list for this are manifold. One of them being that statistically there's 120 guns per American citizen. The topography, the geography of the United States, our militaristic advancement compared to other foreign powers. All of these lead it to be nearly impossible for the United States, let alone the sense of national pride that many Americans have. A sense of corporate and almost sacred identity. National identity. Well, imagine that 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 kind of conviction, the impossibility of invasion, was yours as a person living in Jerusalem. And yet somehow, invasion via multiple nations was incessant. This begins to be a, become a problem for your national identity. But what Joel proclaims to the people of Judah is a renewed sense of this impenetrability. He proclaims a city that will never be broken, that will never be invaded by foreign intruders. Once again, we see that in verse 17, when he proclaims, strangers shall never again pass through the city of Jerusalem. And then in verse 20, we, we, we read this. Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. This is a declaration that they'd never be carried off into exile. That the city would remain, and the streets of the city would remain teeming with the life of God's holy people. Now that should mean... That should mean a lot. If we could exchange city, if we could, we could do a little, little bit of biblical theology here, a little bit of wordplay, if we were to think about the city as maybe instead a garden, that Babylon, that Assyria, that Satan, that sin, that death, are all trying to break their way into, this takes on new meaning, doesn't it? Joel is speaking here of this great and awesome day of the Lord, this great and climactic battle that will take place there throughout throughout this book. And this is a day when this false pretender to the throne from this mountain in the north will ride out with the hordes of destruction against the city of God to take the throne of God. And Joel is proclaiming here that this city is God's city. And that this city is an impenetrable city. And that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's a reversal within the garden city of God. No more test. No more intruder. No more adversary. No more devil. No more opportunity to sin. Probation is over. Never again, as one commentator says, 
Never again is a welcome word to a faithful people whose hearts are turned to God and whose hearts have suffered the affliction of exile and war. This brings us then to our second point this morning, the God who remains. In the back of our minds, really the, sh- the question that we should be asking is, why has intrusion by foreign invader being a problem in the first place? Why has impenetrability not been a reality that we've experienced? The answer is that their protection and their security in Jerusalem require that God dwell with them there. And the only way for God to dwell with them there and protect them, however, is if they were pure. They're still on that merry-go-round of futility God's plan. His goal, therefore, has not been reached if they are impure because he cannot dwell with impurity for all eternity. If God is not in that city, the stones of the city walls are just stones, and if God is not with his people, then what does any of it even matter? It's just a city and just a people. Well, Joel's prophecy remedies this issue too. He proclaims first that God's presence would be on Zion with his people. Once again, we look at verse 17, and there it declares, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. That's a a mighty reversal of Exodus 17, when we read in the second half of verse 17, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Why is that a reversal of Exodus 19? Because when Israel stood before Mount Sinai, what could they not do? They couldn't touch it. They couldn't enter it. The mountain temple of the Lord, the place where his glory had descended and dwelt. But he's now declaring, your city will be my dwelling place. The mountain where you dwell will be where I dwell. And then in verse 18, we see him expand what God's presence would accomplish in that city and in their land. He declares that the mountains will drip sweet wine. You remember in chapter 1, what was one of the primary issues that we covered? It was the absence of the sweet wine that they could not bring to pour over their offerings. And therefore, because there was no sweet wine to bring a sweet aroma up to the Lord and represent the people as pleasing in His sight, there was no joy and gladness in the land. But here He's declaring the mountains would drip with this wine. It would be in superabundance. He declares the hills and the stream beds flow with milk. You'll remember also that one of the effects of the locusts and of the drought that it incurred in chapter 1 was that the animals cried out to the Lord that the animals perished with the drought and with the fire and with the locust. There was widespread death, but now he says that milk will flow through the hills and through the stream beds. I have in my notes here, healthy fed cows equals much milk. More milk than you can imagine. 
where sin had brought destruction, grace would make new life blossom. And this is a reality that they would, Joel declares, possess forever and ever. Verse 20. But Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. There is no end to this reality. There is no end to this blessedness. And the passage closes, For the Lord dwells in Zion. Holy people, holy city, garden exploding in life. And this language, by the way, in verse 18, of a river flowing from the house of God should be especially meaningful to us. Shouldn't it? It reminds us of Revelation 22. A river gives life to the whole city and flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. That is exactly what Joel is picturing here. And what is that river that gives life to this city? The Spirit of the Lord. So the same valleys outside the gates of Jerusalem that in the first 16 verses of this passage were declared to be a place of judgment, the winepress of God whereby he would trample upon the wicked, now for the people of God becomes a source of blessing because his people dwell with him, drawing life from the river and spirit of life. This is a glorified Eden. It's teeming with life. It's teeming with holy and incorruptible people. And God's presence there dwells in inexpressible light. Inexpressible light. And this brings us finally to our third point this morning. The conquering Lord. Even though we had formerly been banned from the garden sanctuary of the Lord, he is the one that draws us to himself there. Even though we had been banned from that sanctuary city of God because of our wickedness, and his glory had departed from Jerusalem, he is the one, because of their sin, he is the one that draws us to the new heavens and the new earth. You see, we stand guilty. Verse 19 indicts Judah. It indicts and lays us before God as guilty. We've shed innocent blood, and on our hands is blood guilt. Interesting there, by the way, that as he indicts Judah for the blood guilt that that they have, he's declaring punishment upon Edom and Egypt for the way that they oppressed Israel for their blood guilt. At the same time, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Our blood guilt, though. We stand sained and tainted with guilt. And contrary to what we deserve, what does... Verse 21 declare, I will avenge their blood guilt. Might seem scary at first. Um, Calvin and others interpret this phrase to mean, I will acquit their blood guilt. And kids, if you don't know what that word acquit means, it means to leave free from punishment. 
Joel declares, I will leave free from punishment the blood guilt that I have not punished. In either sense here, both work. No matter which translation we take of that phrase, either God punishes Christ in our place if he avenges our blood guilt, or he declares us free from punishment because he pours the just deserts for our own sin out on him, out on another. In either sense, God in Christ becomes the all-conquering Lord. Who's exalted here? Who is magnified here? Who's glorified here? He is. I will do it, says the Lord. So because he is the one who's doing it, he is the one that's drawing us to him. We don't ascend that mountain on our own. He draws us there. Secondly, unlike Eden where man is tasked with securing the garden, the conquering Lord is the one who secures the garden. Think back to Eden again with me. Man is tasked there with fulfilling his role as prophet, priest, and king and of maintaining as guardian God's sanctuary, maintaining its purity so that when the devil comes before him, what Adam is supposed to do is fulfill his role as a prophet and correct the devil for his false declaration of what the Lord had said to maintain the proper word of the Lord. As a king, he is supposed to execute righteousness and justice and expel the devil from the garden. And as a priest, he is supposed to maintain the, the, the garden's purity as the place of God's dwelling. And what does he do instead, Adam? He fails in all three. He does not expel the, the devil from the garden, sanctuary of God, this holy place of God's dwelling. He does not correct his false declarations of what the Lord had said. And he does not keep it pure as a priest. But verse 21 also signals to us that because he dwells there as the one who will do it, the conquering Lord, he will be its protector, he will be its guardian, and he will be the one to cleanse the blood of his people that they, that they may remain pure and incorruptible forever. What was missing from Israel that led them to be so susceptible to foreign invasion was the fullness of God's presence. It is His presence and His glory that makes the walls and those stones impenetrable. So that city is safe, guarded by the presence of the Lord, and He is building the walls of His temple with the, with the saints that He has called out of the world. He is the one who keeps the city, city safe. And no intruder will ever again enter into its, its domain to maim, to tempt, to corrupt, or to corral the people of God. John declares that reality as well in Revelation chapter 22. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
you know, in a, in a world of sin, as those not living inside the city of God, as those living amongst the nations, the concept of living amidst God's holy city in an impenetrable, uncorruptible world ought to bring us great hope, great comfort, and great encouragement for the future that we might persevere in the present. Finally, unlike the drink offering that they could not bring, this is the people of Joel in, in chapter 1. Unlike the drink offering they could not bring because of the drought, the temple throne itself is the water source of all fertility and joy. Notice that reversal. In chapter 1, the cutting off of the drink offerings that the people brought, the people brought, that was what yielded their joy and the fruitfulness and their enjoyment of creation. Now the Lord himself, the all-conquering Lord, is the one from whose spirit all fruitfulness and joy will flow in that city. And so we might say nothing in our hands we bring, yet grace freely flows through the city creating life. That's a free gift. No offering needed to earn his favor, to earn his blessedness in the land. It simply is the reality of his presence. Eternally so. And so what's the result of this? Revelation 22.3 No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will behold his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. God and his dwelling with his people forever. The plan of redemption accomplished. Where his people dwell incorruptible in his presence, offering to him perpetual worship, praise, and glory. Talk about a cure to a worship crisis. An impenetrable city as an incorruptible people dwelling with him forever. And we ourselves have worship crises, don't we? We ourselves, as Paul says, fall short of the glory of God and fall short of giving glory to his name. As we noted earlier, it's our happy duty to do his will, to give him, ultimately speaking, praise and glory. There is no higher cause, there is no more joy that we could have than to honor God by doing his will and glorifying his name. It is the very purpose for which we were created, and Joel is here declaring a day when there will be no trouble to do that, to offer to him perfect, perpetual praise and glory and to dwell with him forever for all eternity. That's something we can long for. And to that end, let's pray. Our great God and Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise for the, the picture that you give us of what we long and look forward to in, in the new heavens and the new earth when you come again. We ask this week that you would enable us to offer 
with jubilant hearts, praise and, and glory that is due to your name. Encourage us, lift up our faint hearts. For this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.